I invite you to stand up once again as we read God's Word in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But Jews were jealous and taken some wicked men of the rubble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women who of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm John and I want to greet you in the name of the God who is turning the world upside down. And by that we mean that the dead can have new life, that rebellious people can be forgiven, not just forgiven, but become what the Bible describes as, as royalty, that we serve a suffering and world-inverting and really life-orienting king. I love what it says in that passage. It says these men are saying that there's another king, 
And that's uh, what I want to proclaim to you today is that there is another king who is outside this world but who came into this world to show us the way to live and to serve and to follow him. He's a king who has humbled himself. Over the last uh, three and a half months or so, I have been having conversations with a variety of congregants, just one-on-one series of phone calls, and my first of three questions to, to talk with them about is really just, how have you been surviving COVID? What's been going on for you? What's been happening the last 12 months, and how are you processing things? And remarkably, some people's response is, you know, um, despite everything, I feel as if uh, God's been with me. I had, some people have said to me, you know what, I've had more people reach out to me during COVID than prior to COVID. Fe- felt a real sense of connection to other people, but other people have spoken of isolation and loneliness. A lot of people think coming out of the last 12 months, there's, there already is and will be a sustained and widespread mental health crisis, that, that people really will be struggling with their own sense of orientation and well-being. But I had one real interesting conversation with a couple about two weeks ago, and I was fascinated, and I've been kind of meditating on what the woman said. She said, don't you think that coming out of COVID that we'll need some kind of healing, not just individually, but almost like as a church, that we've, we've gone through something traumatic <laughs> and that we'll need something to kind of gather us back together again. And that really, that really struck me with the I've been having this picture of COVID sort of taking the roots of our lives and loosening them in a way where the things that we maybe felt rooted to before, we almost feel uh, unrooted from now, that there's this kind of disorientation. And the theme that I want to pursue today and the title for today is really uh, following Jesus in a time of disorientation. How do you follow Jesus when life seems very sort of upside down? Um, the, the text that we're going to look at, there's this phrase that, that Sully has begun with, with this idea that these men were turning the world upside down, that something is happening and there's this extreme sense of disorientation, not only between those who are hearing the word, but also those who are, who are speaking the word. I don't know if any of you, I think a couple of you probably do own a GoPro camera. I can see a a few photographers in the room that I believe probably do. But they have this kind of amazing stabilizing device with, I don't understand how it works, but maybe there's a gyroscope in there or something. But anyway, they, they concentrate, the cameras do, on the horizon so that somebody who's riding a bike, say, through the mountains... It looks like the bike is kind of moving up and down, but the, the image is, is just very stable. And that's the sense that I have in this kind of going through this passage right now is that there's a tremendous sense of kind of everything is rocking and going up and down, but there's this sense of stability that uh, Paul and Silas have. And I, that's what I just want to bring before you today. I want to argue today this one very simple truth, that, that Jesus is the suffering 
world-inverting and life-orienting king. He's the suffering and world-inverting and life-orienting king. And I'm going to just show you that under three headers, two that take place in Thessalonica and then one that takes place in this, in, uh, this city that is called uh, Berea. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came to invert so much of the world to take the sinful and rebellious and make us pure and holy. To take the disillusioned and point to a new direction in life. To take the weak and through the resurrection to make them strong. To take the proud and to make them humble. To take every valley and lift it up and every mountain and to make it low. And so we pray that that Christ would be kind of an orientation for us this morning in the midst of a destabilized and chaotic world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, keep your Bible open on your digital device or uh, with your paper Bible to chapter 17 as we're going to be looking at uh, three sections here, really. One of thinking of Jesus as a suffering king. And I'm going to just have one basic or two applications coming out of each one. So verses 1 to 4, I just want to make this claim that, that what Paul and Silas are arguing is that Jesus is a suffering king. Now, for, for people who have been aware of who Jesus is for many years or have heard of him in culture before, the idea of Jesus as a suffering king is not a surprising thought. We have images of Jesus on the cross in museums, throughout medieval history, there are pictures of Jesus bleeding. Uh, if you walk through uh, if you walk through the streets of Chicago, you can see people that will have a cross, and the cross is a symbol of suffering. But in the day that Paul and Silas were teaching and preaching, the idea that not Jesus was a suffering king, but especially that the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament was going to be a suffering king, was very controversial. Controversial enough that it causes this big backlash that we see in Thessalonica. The Old Testament uh, predictions of who the Messiah would be are very clear that he would be a powerful person. So I'll show that to you in just a moment, but let's get the context here in verses 1 to 4. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they've just come from Philippi, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul has made a declaration earlier in his ministry that he is going to go primarily to the Gentiles. But his, his methodology and his practice is to first go to the Jews, because they're the ones who had been given all of the scriptures, the ones who had been given the priesthood, who had been given um, the kings in Israel. They're the ones who were given the prophecies. Uh, the uh, great mathematician Blaise Pascal speaks of the way that the prophecies were littered throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but also through history, so that when the Messiah actually came, it would be sort of beyond a doubt that he indeed was the Messiah. So they go into the synagogue, and uh, it says that Paul went in and was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There's three great words here that speak of Paul's 
uh, activity as a missionary in that context. He reasoned, he explained, and he proved. The idea of, of reasoning here is actually he was dialoguing with them. The next word is actually pretty similar to dialoguing. It means this kind of exchange. And the proving is this idea of setting something alongside of something else in order to show something. There's a Hebrew concept which is called pesher, which really just means interpretation. But one of the kinds of pesher that exists is taking the Old Testament texts and showing something there and then moving to the present or the future and showing something else there. They call it this is that or this is is that. And what, that's what Paul's doing. He's showing them in Hebrew texts that what those texts said would happen have happened. And not only that what those texts said would happen have happened, but that they've happened in a person whose name is Jesus. Now, I had to just get, say one more word about this idea of uh, the Messiah in, in, from the first, first century perspective. Um, the messianic concept in the first century as they look back to the Old Testament was primarily of a military ruler. Sadly, if you think of what's happening right now in the Middle East, there's tremendous fury being unleashed, primarily by, the, by Israel, also by the Palestinians, and I don't want to get into a political debate, but if you, if you look at the, the massive power that is, is destroying lives, that's the picture, something like that is the picture that the first century Jew had in their mind. That there would be tremendous destruction that would come when the Messiah came. And, and there's all these texts in the Old Testament that are, you can call them messianic texts. One of them is Psalm chapter 2, where it speaks of the Messiah, or Mashiach, and it says that God's going to put his son on a holy hill in Zion, and that from Zion, he's going to rule all people. One of the things that uh, postmodernism reacts against is the idea of meta narratives or that there's any kind of grand theory that can speak of everything. And so many people have a, a really hard time, a, a very hard time with Christian claims today. Not because they seem strange or weird, which is what sort of it seemed like a century ago, you know, maybe irrelevant, but today they seem like a threat or dangerous because the, the claims of Christianity are sort of universal claims. And the claim in Psalm 2 is that this, this leader is going to come and he will rule not just Israel, not just from Jerusalem, but Israel and then all of the peoples. In fact, the text says in Psalm 2, that he will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. So the, old, the first century concept of Old Testament Messiah was somebody who's very powerful, someone like Dwayne Johnson, the rock or something, not somebody, that's, not somebody who is weak and hanging upon a cross. And so what when Paul and Silas begin to make these proclamations, it's very offensive to the first century Jews about the kind of Messiah that was... The idea of a crucified Messiah doesn't make sense. The idea of a suffering king did not make sense to them. And yet, what Paul was, was doing was walking through the Old Testament 
say a place like Psalm, uh, sorry, Isaiah 53 and saying this is that. I'm just going to read a little bit of, of Psalm 53, which is uh, a, it's a description of the suffering servant, but of the Messiah as well. And it says in, in Isaiah 53, it says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The Messiah wouldn't have made it in Hollywood. The Messiah didn't have anything external that would be attractive. And then it says that he was despised and rejected by man. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We call that substitutionary atonement today. We call, it's the idea that the Son of God died in our place, suffered in our place, and something powerful and redemptive happened. The forgiveness of sins that was prophesied in the Old Testament through lambs being slaughtered and oxen being slaughtered suddenly took place in the divine Son of God and forgiveness became available to everyone. The idea of a suffering king and Messiah was absolutely blasphemous to the first century Jews. But what I want to call you to is pretty simple, and that is to simply rest in the suffering king. There's a beauty to trusting in the suffering king for your wholeness, for your redemption, for your rightness with God that says all of the strivings and strugglings that you have to make yourself Instagram worthy or worthy before the Lord have been completed in someone else who was the prophesied one. Jesus is a suffering king, and that is actually something that we can rest in. There's a part of me that reads this and reads those all those verbs there, that they were reasoning and explaining and proving and proclaiming and persuading that wants me to apply that also, which is part of the application in one sense, that, that Christians and followers of Jesus have, need to know the scriptures. But I also really just want you to rest in a time of disorientation in the one who has accomplished these things for you, to rest in him. He's a king. He's a humble king. And he's a suffering king, and he's the one that Paul and Silas are proclaiming. I'll move on to the second little section before I do. Let me just quote Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as crimson, they shall become like wool. That is what the suffering king does for us as we look to him in faith, as he exchanges our crimson brokenness for his snow white not like snow white but you know white as snow healing not only is Jesus a suffering king but he is also what you might call the the world inverting king um, and that's what you see in this next little section verses five through nine it says, but the Jews were jealous, this is still in Thessalonica, taking some wicked men from the rabble. I love that little word there, rabble. It's like these, the, the rabble are these, these people that sit around all day. They're not, they're not doing anything productive, and they, with a little bit of motivation, a little bit of money, they will be mobilized to, to uh, 
form a mob if nece necessary. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. I have the imagery here of, you know, in modern day, it's like people with pitchforks and, and uh, carrying torches. But they, this mob then comes because of what the Jews were upset about and they, they stir up this, uh, this group of unruly people who set the city in an uproar, it says, and attacked the house of Jason, who was one of their um, ministry companions, somebody that was hosting them in, Th in Thessalonica, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason, this person who was hosting Paul and Silas and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, and, and this is an indictment, but uh, as we've meditated on already, it's part of what God is doing. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, which is they're breaking the law, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And uh, in that culture, uh, disobedience to the king was a problem. You could practice your religion basically in any way that you wanted to. But if you started to make claims about a king, then that becomes... Um, subversive to the empire, and that's ex exactly what is happening. And so they have this little phrase there that they're proclaiming that there is another king, Jesus, and is making a claim sort of accidentally in their mouths of this universal ruling one who's going to depose all the tyrants of the world. There are places in Colossians and, and Ephesians where it speaks of him, of Jesus, deposing every power and principality and authority. John Stott says that um, this is something that is very, was very dangerous in that time. He says, on the one hand, as Christian people, we we're called to be conscientious and law-abiding, not revolutionaries. On the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has unavoidable political implications since as his royal subjects, we must refuse to give any ruler or ideology the supreme homage and total obedience due to him alone. He will depose all other kings one day, but he also deposes all of the other things that rule our hearts. He has come to be supreme. It's kind of a, a guarantee that this is coming. Um, there are all kinds of things that will seek to become, become rulers in our lives. Our work, our sexuality, our sense of self-worth. And I just want to put this, these, these four words in your mind today, which is there is another king. When, whenever you feel the sense of something creeping in and beginning to rule, to just remind yourself, no, there's another king. This suffering king. This world inverting king. Isaiah 40 puts it this way, and this is what John the Baptist said when he came. Every valley shall be lifted up. See this, the motion of kind of inversion. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and then the rough places plain. The inverting power of Jesus takes the, the proud and makes them humble. And it takes the humble and lifts them up. <laughs> the, the world inverting power of Jesus takes, literally takes the dead and gives them new life. 
takes the, 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 the broken and heals them. Takes the sinner and said, you, says, you are remembered as a sinner no more. You are now lifted up. We're going to sing in a little bit. My name is written on his hands, graven on his hands. And it's this idea of looking to him, the inverting one, in the challenging circumstances of our life. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's glory is a world inverting glory. Part of the reason why we feel disoriented today is because we lose our sight of Christ, the stabilizing and orienting one in the world. This is a leveling power. Mark Sayers in his book, The Reappearing Church, argues that the great seasons of revival and renewal usually come right after a season of tremendous crisis. That in history, it's when there's a great crisis that often God begins to work in a new way. So let's make that our, our prayer, that he would work in powerful ways in our culture today. Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Cat, says left is right, up is down, all is mixed up. That's kind of what it feels like today. The profane rapper Eminem, also now up is down, left is right, day is night, in is out, black is white. Am I coming or going? Man, I can't decide. My first application is just rest in the, in the suffering king, but I want to ask you to follow the world-inverting king. Follow him. And it's, I, I feel like Christ in this passage is like this stabilizing force in the midst of the culture. This, you know, in, in John, it says, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, which means he's the way to the Father. But it also means that in his being, he is simply the way of living, that he himself embodies the place that we all find ourselves. Carl F.H. Henry, uh, in a book called The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, says this, a Christianity that does not seek to turn the world upside down is foreign to apostolic Christianity. Which doesn't mean that we turn the world upside down, but it means that that's what Christ is doing, is turning the world upside down. And then the last little section here, I just want to show you. First claim is this, that we serve a, Jesus is a suffering king, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is a world-inverting king. The last little claim I want to make before we close is that Jesus is a life-orienting king. And what happens to the Bereans in verses uh, 10 to 15 is they start searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. And what they're doing is saying, do, do the scriptures actually speak of a suffering and rising king? Do they actually speak of this world-inverting power that somebody is going to have in the world and just to put a modern understanding on it, what they're doing is they're orienting their life to this text and to this person and seeing if this person is really who he claims to be. The brothers immediately, verse 10, went, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Nice little uh, kind of jab here. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Luke says. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see daily if these things were so. And it's interesting that Luke says that here because Paul 
tells the Thessalonians in Thessalonica that there's really no one like them who really received the word with, with such humility and power. So when you get to heaven, we can find out between Luke and Paul who's right. But it says, many of them therefore believed. And Luke, always trying to elevate those who seem to be outsiders, says, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also, they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds, and then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So what were these noble Bereans doing? Uh, they're searching the scriptures. They're receiving uh, the, word, the, the scriptures with all eagerness. There's a, other translations speak of them sort of pouring over Scriptures in old Baptist circles, the, the, if there was like a club, it was the Berean club because they were the ones who were searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. And uh, my, my application there is simply for us to immerse ourselves in this prophecy-fulfilling one, this life-orienting one. Jesus is your orientation, medically speaking, vertigo is this sense that you're always falling, falling kind of, <laughs> this sense of dizziness. Uh, and I, I think culturally we're in this moment where it almost feels like we have like corporate vertigo. We feel like we're kind of falling, like where is, where's up and where's down? Um, there's a 1958 uh, film that is a kind of classic um, Alfred Hitchcock film called Vertigo. James Stewart uh, is in it, and they did some new stuff with the cameras that they called the Vertigo effect. Um, and essentially, it's this a, a kind of a sense of disorientation and not knowing where your point of reference is. And what the Bereans are doing is finding their point of reference in Jesus as fulfilled in the scriptures. So if you need some orientation in your life, there's a place to find it. It's in the living word of God. One of the first world problems that I've experienced is being in the center of the city. This is, more, this is a year ago when, when I used Uber. And uh, what would happen in the center of the city is the GPS doesn't really work because of all the tall buildings. And so I would sometimes take screenshots of the Uber because it would say, like, it'll be here in four minutes, and then the next one says seven minutes, and then it, you, it shows the map of, like, where they're going, and they're, like, going completely the wrong direction, and then <laughs> going this way and that way. So just, for, I would sometimes just take, like, 12 screenshots. Just in my mind, I was going to appeal to Uber and tell them, you know, you wasted eight minutes of my time, you know, how could you possibly do that? But that's a GPS problem. It's like... Those maps in the mall, they have this dot that says, you are here, right? There's a sense in our culture today where we can't tell really where we are. And it's unstable. It's, it's destabilizing. And what, what, who Christ is, one of the things that he does for us is become the center, become the refuge, become the stabilizing place for all of us in the midst of illness, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of continuous fallenness, 
where we continue to make the same mistakes that we made last week. The friend that I was speaking with at the beginning said, I think we need a sense of healing, all of us. And I want to commend to you Jesus, the suffering one. Jesus, the world inverting one. Jesus, the life-orienting one, that you might find your rest in him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul and Silas and their courage in the midst of fierce opposition to proclaim that there is a universal ruler who came in such a strange way, not with force and might and power, but with surrender that we who don't have might or power and who are broken might be healed, might be forgiven, might be raised from the dead, might live with mission in this world and hope in the midst of disorientation. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.